I have two goats for you in today's message. The title of today's message is Jesus teaches us how to... That was a blank. Jesus teaches us how to fill in the blank. First, Jesus teaches us how to be saved. Then, Jesus teaches us how to be a generous giver. And then, Jesus teaches us how to be salt and light. If you want to be saved, if you want to be a generous giver, if you want to be salt and light, then Jesus is the best teacher you can have. As a matter of fact, He's the greatest of all time. And if you're going to have the best teacher of all time, the greatest of all time teacher, if you're going to have Him, then why not learn from His best sermon? The greatest of all time sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. And it was preached by Jesus. And you can read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through 7. And so now I've already given you two goats for today's message. The Lord Jesus is the first one, and the Sermon on the Mount is the second one. Brother Kevin, what in the world are you talking about? The word goat in Jesus does not belong in the same sentence, although he did use that word quite a bit when he was talking about the difference between goats and sheep. And by the way, if you know anything about goats and sheep, from a distance they, they are very uh, similar. And you can confuse goats for sheep. And that's what happens in the church sometimes as well. But Brother Kevin, what are you doing using the word goat in anything in relationship to Jesus, because normally goat is a negative term and sheep is a positive term, but sometimes sheep can be negative too because sheep do bite. Well, the kids of this church taught me this. All right. So specifically, it was the Gillette boys who taught me, who first mentioned this goat phenomena to me. It was Eli and John John and Benjamin. They kept asking me, who is the goat in football? Who is the who do you think the goat is? Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, or Tom Brady? Notice that, like so many times, the question came in such a way that the answer was presupposed. You remember last week's message? Remember when the rich young ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You notice there that he presupposed the answer when he was asking Jesus. And you remember the disciples in last week's message when they just happened to pass by a blind man and the disciples asked, this, this blind man, Lord Jesus, tell us, uh, is he blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sins? Please tell us. Notice that the question presupposed the answer. It had the answer that they thought was right. So many times in our own lives, we ask questions and we asked them in such a way that we think we already know the answers. And so it was with the Gillette boys that day. When they said, who is the goat? And they named Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. By the way, I know Eli was involved because Eli is the only person who would have put Eli Manning on that list. Um, but it, I must admit that it took me quite a while to even figure out what are they talking about. And I think it was John John who had mercy on me. He saw the blank stare in my eyes and he said, Brother Kevin's not getting this goat thing at all. Goat, greatest of all time. Goat. Oh, 
It's an acronym. I can deal with acronyms. I love acronyms. And so now back to our goats. The greatest person who ever lived is Jesus Christ. He's the goat. The greatest sermon of all times is the Sermon on the Mount. There's your second goat. I told you we had two goats today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It may seem to the casual watcher today that I am treating uh, Your Son and Your Word and this sermon flippantly, but nothing could be farther from the truth. I so deeply respect and revere my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the words that He preached on the Sermon on the Mount. As hard as they are to follow, they are still Your Word. And we thank You for them. Burn within our hearts, Lord, the truth of Your Word. Call us to repentance. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And of course, the Bible is a goat too, so I'm actually giving you three goats today. The greatest of all time... Books, the Bible is obviously the greatest of all times, a magnificent collection of 66 smaller books written over 1,500 years on three continents in three languages by 40 different authors under the divine authorship of one author, God Himself. The, book is a, the Bible is a book of infinite wisdom and insight that never fails, for God's Word cannot return to itself void. The Bible, God's Word, will always accomplish God's will. And the Bible is such a practical book too. The Bible is the ultimate how-to book. You know what a how-to book is, right? If you don't know what a how-to book is, when you get home, plug the words how-to book into your favorite search engine and then look for the results. I did this yesterday, and the first page showed me 10 of the best how-to books of all time out of 479 million results. How-to books are pretty popular. And by the way, the Bible was not on the first page. should have been, because it is the greatest of all time how-to books. So I just looked at that first page and I said, well, what, what all is on there? Well, I thought this was fascinating. Uh, if you're interested in learning how to knit your own socks, make cheese or grow medicinal herbs during your home quarantine, you're not alone? Well, actually, you are alone, but that was one how-to book. Here's another how-to book. Um, the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing by Marie Kondo. And I know that's a personal favorite of some of y'all out there, so I thought I'd include that. But the Bible is the ultimate how-to book. Its infinite wisdom and insight will never fail you. And some of you never read it. Some of you read it just to check a box. God's Word will never return void. The Bible will always accomplish His will because His Word will not return to Him void. In the greatest of all time books, the Bible, we find the greatest of all men who ever lived, Jesus, preaching the greatest of all time sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we are today, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're going to start in Matthew 7 and work our way backwards through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in 7. We have a passage in 7. We have a passage in 6. We have a passage in 5. And we're going to talk about the greatest sermon of all times. And we're going to take one teeny little sermon 
and try to do it justice. Uh, any one of these passages could be a sermon series for weeks, if not months. Any one of these chapters could be a sermon series for quarters, if not years. Matter of fact, you can spend your entire life studying the Sermon on the Mount and you will not plumb its depths or ascend its heights. Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is the word of the Lord. I see three timeless truths here in this first passage. First truth, a good tree produces good fruit. Now this is something that the psalmist did. This is something that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is to compare people to trees. Psalm 1, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing stream that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Jesus talked a lot about farming and husbandry and trees. He loved the soil and the plants and the trees, as do I. And he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, that every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Some people think I'm a good gardener. I'm not. I just buy a lot of plants and I throw away the plants that aren't doing well. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. You got a tree and it's not producing good fruit. We don't have room for that. We don't have time for that. In Israel, when we were there, we saw thousands upon thousands of olive trees carefully taken care of. And space is at a premium. Water is at a premium. If a tree is not producing good fruit, it will be removed. And Jesus tells us that we can recognize people by their fruit. We're not to judge them. That's also in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. But this is not talking about judgment. This is talking about discernment. And some of you are reacting very negatively right now because I said we are to look for evidences of good fruit. If I didn't say it, I should have, and I'm going to say it again. We are to look for evidences of good fruit because you may not be happy with me because you feel like being a fruit inspector is innately judgmental. But don't you want your fruit to be inspected before you buy it or pick it off the tree? If you pick it off the tree, you better inspect it. Maybe you even feel like being a fruit inspector is sin. I do think that it's wrong to judge a person by their fruit or by their lack of fruit, but it is downright foolish to ignore the fruit people are producing or are not producing. 
So don't be don't judge, but be careful to inspect because a good tree produces good fruit. That's the first timeless truth from this passage. And we're talking about how to be saved. Remember this, a good tree produces good fruit. Secondly, I want you to remember that good words are not enough. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Notice that they have the nomenclature right. They know who He is. He is the Lord. They know His title. He is the Lord. They even sound like someone who would respect Him and obey Him and worship Him as Lord. They've got the words right. But everybody who says, Lord, Lord, isn't going to make it into heaven. So please learn. And just because someone's using the right words doesn't mean that they're on the gospel train. Don't count on using the right words to get you to heaven. When I was a young boy, I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and I was saved. But I couldn't remember the words that I said. And for years, I struggled because I didn't remember exactly what I said. So I'd pray them all over again. I did this for years. The right words won't save you. If the right words would save you, we should just print them out on a little three by five card, hand them out to everybody we see and say, say these words. The right words will not save you. I'll tell you another thing. It's true that good words are not enough. Good works are not enough either. Verse 22, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, here it is again, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Wait a minute. Lord Jesus, a minute ago, you said that a good tree produces good fruit. This sounds like good fruit. This sounds like driving out demons. That's a pretty good thing. Doing miracles in the name of Jesus. That sounds like a pretty good thing. Prophesying in the name of the Lord. That sounds, yes, those are good works, but just because you say the right words and do the right things, that is not necessarily proof that you know the Lord. And the Lord, just to make sure you know this, the Lord says it specifically here. Not everybody who says these things and does these things is going to make it into heaven. These are some of the scariest verses in the Bible. Are you telling me, Brother Kevin, that if I prophesy in the name of the Lord Jesus and if I drive out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus and if I do miracles in the name of the Lord Jesus, that that's not enough? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And by the way, some people might call this prophesying. Okay, so I've done one out of the three. I haven't driven out any demons and I haven't worked any miracles. So I've only done one out of the three on the list. There are people who have done all three on the list that aren't going to be in heaven. Well, Brother Kevin, if the good words, Lord, Lord, are not enough, and if the good works, miracles, prophecies, driving out demons, if those are not enough, what is enough? And in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is wrapping up His sermon. And it's, he doesn't say in conclusion, but basically that's what He's doing. He's driving, He's pulling it all together, and He's basically talking about who's going to make it into the kingdom. And you know who's going to make it into the kingdom? Go back to verse 21. There it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only, here it is, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In verse 21, Jesus specifically says that only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter into heaven. So that's how you get into heaven. 
Just do the will of the Father. Easy, right? Brother Kevin, what exactly is the will of the Father in regards to salvation? What is the will of the Father in regards to getting into heaven, to being saved? How to be saved? I believe that the Apostle Paul answered this question so beautifully and clearly in his letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 8. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the, the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a difference between the person who calls out, Lord, Lord, and does it for show. There's a difference between the one who calls out, Lord, Lord, and works these incredible things. Let's be honest, these are incredible things. And the person who cries out in humble submission, Lord, Save me a sinner. There's a difference. The Bible says your good words won't save you. Your good works won't save you. The Bible says that the only thing that's going to save you is when you believe in your heart and confess Him with your mouth that He is Lord. Then and only then will you bear good fruit. So in the greatest of all books, the Bible, we find the greatest of all men, Jesus, preaching the greatest of all-time sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen now how to be saved. Let's look at how to be a generous giver. Brother Ralph wanted me to make sure to point out that there are offering plates uh, back there. So we're going to take a retiring offering. And as I told some of our first-time visitors with us last week, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on giving. So that's long overdue. But I am about to preach a little passage on giving. And it's how to be a generous giver. Matthew chapter 6. We're moving backwards now in the Sermon on the Mount. We were in 7, now we're going to 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they had their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, be careful. I don't know about you, but when Jesus tells me to be careful, I sit up and take notice. One of the first words I learned in Spanish was cuidado. When I went to Romania, I said, I better look for that warning words in Romanian too. It's avets grigia. Because if someone says avets grigia, I better be looking for what's going on. And in Romania, you need to be looking for what's going on. It is a different world over there. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be careful. Cuidado. Avets grigia. Notice here that Jesus doesn't tell us to give. He assumes that we're going to give. Because if you are His, you are a giver. But He wants you to be the right kind of giver. He wants you to be a generous giver. Once you're His, He knows you're going to give. He wants you to be careful how you give. 
And when you're preaching from the greatest of all time sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, you know that you're going to have some pretty good company. Great preachers have preached on this sermon, and I'm no great preacher, but I have heard some great sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And when you have three sons in the ministry, you can ask them for help. Justin sent me a recent sermon uh, on the Sermon on the Mount that, that he preached. Trevin had to memorize the Sermon on the Mount in Romanian to get in to Manual Bible College, where he did his college work. And he's, he knows a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount, so he sent me some sermons. So if there's a good illustration in anything that follows, it's Trevin's, okay? I'm just, I'm just telling you. Here's one of them. Think about the fingers on a concert pianist. A pianist cannot play well if he has to continually concentrate on where each finger has to go. If Justin Branham were here today and was, and was telling us about how he plays the violin, the mandolin, the list goes on and on and on. He would tell you that he can't concentrate on what each finger does. That's how you start out. That's how you learn. When I was taking piano lessons, I had to learn which fingers went on which notes in which sequence. But that's not how a good pianist ends up. A pianist cannot concentrate on what the fingers are doing. You just do it. It's like that in giving as well. Those who give in the right way just give. They don't think about it. They don't dwell on it. They don't harp about it every day. They just do it. Giving generously is like pitching softball. And I, I used to pitch softball. And when I first started, it was so easy. I mean, compared to baseball, when you have to deliver the ball to the plate overhand, and you're doing your dead-level best to make sure they don't hit it, if at all possible, being able to pitch underhand was such a piece of cake. And I could do it. I was fairly good at it. But a time came when I absolutely could not throw the ball anywhere near the target, and I could not figure out what was going on. So I thought about my footwork. I thought about my release point. That was it for me. The big thing for me was, when do I actually let go of the ball in the motion? And I was so concentrated on this and a hundred other things that I couldn't do it. So I had to blank all that out of my mind, and I just had to do it. And once I did that, I was fine. Now let's talk about my golf swing. No, let's, let's don't. You see, giving should be like pitching a softball. You should just do it. You shouldn't have to think about it. It should be automated to not care what people can see. If you're thinking about when to give and whom to give to and how much to give, maybe you're overthinking it. Maybe you're not a generous giver. Maybe you're more of a calculating giver. And that's not what Jesus wants you to be. Jesus tells you how to be a generous giver and He starts by telling you to do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And kids, you may be looking at me saying, how can my left hand not know what my right hand is doing. But that's just a figure of speech. What Jesus is saying, if your left hand can't see what your right hand's doing, then nobody else can either. Do your giving in secret. Jesus teaches us how to be saved. He teaches us how to be a generous giver. He also teaches us how to be salt and light. 
moving backwards now through the sermon. We were in chapter 7, now chapter 6. Now we're moving to chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. In the times of Jesus, salt was a preservative. It was far more than just a flavoring agent that we think of it today. Salt was a preservative because it slowed down the inevitable decay of the meat. Salt was one of the most powerful and most desired commodities known to man. And so it is with the church, or at least it should be. Jesus wants us to slow down the inevitable decay of humanity. Because the psalmist said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And Paul, the apostle, echoed that when he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. All we have gone, that's Isaiah, all we have gone astray like sheep. John Sott said this, God intends the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society to be His own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. Do you know what God has assigned to us? He has assigned to us to hold back the floods of wickedness in this world. A German pastor by the name of Helmut Thaliki said this, Jesus, of course, did not say, you are the honey of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites. And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. I don't know about you, but when I'm eating my biscuits at Cracker Barrel, I'd rather put honey on them than salt. And sometimes as Christians, we think our job is to be the honey of the earth. But you must remember this, man is everywhere and in everything in outright rebellion against God. And it is our job as Christians to slow that rebellion, to stand athwart the road and say, stop, you are headed towards destruction. We are to be salt. We are to be light. The passage that we studied last week, John chapter 9, do you remember this? As Jesus was passing by, He saw a blind man and the disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said this, Neither. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in Him. We must do the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Now here it is. Listen. Listen to what Jesus said. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But notice that Jesus is preparing the disciples and us for a time when He will not physically be in the world. He will be with His Father in heaven. And He'll send the Holy Spirit for us. But when He goes, we are the light of the world. It is our responsibility. Hey, Christians, you do know that He left us that job, right? We are to be salt. We are to be light. I guess this message is the German Pastor Week because Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another German pastor, said this. I want you to listen. This is so good. The followers... He's talking about the church. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about you. 
the followers are a visible community. Their discipleship is visible in action, which lifts them out of the world. Otherwise, it's not discipleship. And of course, the following is visible to the world as a light is in the darkness or a mountain rising from the plain. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Him. So my friends, do you know how to be saved? Do you know how to be a generous giver? Do you know how to be salt and light? If the answer to any of those questions is still no, I, I encourage you to seek me out or Brother Ken or Brother Weston or any of our faithful deacons or any of our faithful members and, and let us have a further discussion. And now we're going to enter the time of the sermon where I invite you to respond. We talk a lot about confession of faith, confession of sin, the time of giving, the time of fellowship. We haven't talked quite as much, much about the time of response. We will always give you a time to respond because the gospel calls men to repentance and because there are so many times when we need to make a decision for Christ. And I don't say this to get you to come down forward because I resist that type of manipulation. And we will have an invitation whether one person comes or no person comes or if every person in the auditorium comes and we have to go outside and get more people to come in to be in the audience. We're going to give an invitation because it's the right thing to do. The Bible, the Gospel, Jesus calls us to respond. So now we're going to have an invitation. And the altar is open for you. It's open for you if you need to make a decision for Christ. It's open for you if you need to join this church. It's open for you if you need to be baptized. It's open for you if there's sin in your life and you need to confess it to the Lord. The invitation is open. The altar is open. And that's why we do this. And that's why we do this every single week, whether anybody comes forward or not. We're going to give you the opportunity to respond. So let's pray and let's do that. Father, we thank You that You told us how to be saved. We're thankful that You told us how to be generous givers. We're thankful that You told us how to be salt and light. Lord, thank You that You made it so clear to us that it's not just about saying the right words or doing the right works, but it's all about believing in Your Son, confessing Him as Lord in our hearts and with our lips. And I pray, Lord, at this time of invitation, whatever decision needs to be made, it will be made. And we pray all these things in Your name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.